Two-story landed homes coming soon in Bandarim Bayou. Guarded community living that's affordable. With easy access to highways, conveniences, shopping mall and dining choices. Make Robin at Rimbayou your private nature escape now. Register your interest to enjoy the best deal. Visit Rimbayou.com or call 017-964-0828. Banda Rimbayou. Reliving nostalgic memories today. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. And this is where I feel self-pity as, you know, as abject as it is, because I, there's a side of me that thinks of it as pathetic, you know, mm. and I don't encourage it or whatever, mm. but it does speak to a very interesting impulse. Mm-hmm. And that is the fact that we do invest in our attachments and connections with people. Yes, you know? we do. And sometimes we don't necessarily have the emotional vocabulary to describe it. Mm-hmm. And when there's a breakdown in that, mm-hmm. you know, we just turn inside because where else are we going to go? You That's know, right. because so much of our valuation of a connection is mm. in, is very personal. Very good. You know, so sometimes like when that doesn't work mm. and that person doesn't recognize it, yes, you mirage. It's just the only retreat you have sometimes. Mm. You know. I'm Ahmad Fatrahma and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores theory, concepts and society. This week we are joined again by Eugene T. Welcome back to the show, Eugene. Hello, Ahmad. And we are going to talk about (laughs) self-pity. So, which is very, very hard to talk about. Nobody likes to admit that, you know, they sometimes indulge in it or it happens to them because in a lot of ways, it's the antithesis Mm -hmm. of the you know, the, the individual who's fully in control of their destiny, mm. who's secure and emotionally, like, you know, intact, mm. right? Self-pity signals a dissolution in a lot of ways of yes. your sense of mastery, yes. right? Yeah. And of course, a loneliness too. So yes. people generally, while they might feel it, they might encounter moments of it, generally would not admit it or want to talk about mm. it. Yeah. So it's interesting for that you uh, introduced this concept, this emotion of self-pity, because there's really very little scholarly research on that area. We know that pity is an emotion that we experience in relation to someone who is suffering, but it implies a kind of superiority. Mm-hmm. So no one likes to be the pitied individual. So right. if someone tells you that I pity you, you almost take that as a sense of offense. But when you direct that sense of pity towards yourself, that's when you get self-pity. Mm-hmm. You start sympathizing with yourself, your sorry state, and you think that why me, poor me, mm-hmm. why has the world turned against me? You also introduced it just a while ago that it's related to the idea of loneliness mm-hmm. and studies. That's this one particular study which I've seen. It's by a guy named Joachim Stober. And he's found that it's related to rumination, it's related to depression, mm-hmm. it's also related to loneliness as well. And so it's a whole host of maladaptive ways that people engage in and the kinds of processes that they engage in when they're experiencing self-pity. Yeah, you described that a very interesting metaphor or imagery rather where in self-pity, the victim and the execution is the same. That's right. Right? The passive standpoint and the active standpoint mm. kind of just blend into one another. That's right. And, but of course, it's painful as well to, it for is that painful. to happen. But there's a strange sense of comfort, I think, when people engage in self-pity in that it's a bit paradoxical 
on one hand, when you pity yourself, you want others to take note. You're in a way expressing some kind of a need, a cry, for instance, that others should actually attend to you. And if you don't get it, though, sometimes, and what this one particular study has shown, is that you act out in that anger as well. Hey, come on, I'm the one suffering here. I wish for you to come and pay attention to me, to attend to me. Why not caring yeah. for me? So there's a sense of intention, if you will, to elicit the sympathy and the attention of others when you engage in expressions of self-pity. Yeah. Why is it difficult to be pitied on? I know this might sound like a silly question, Mm. but I want to touch on the thing that you said earlier where there's a discomfort Mm. in being the recipient of pity, Mm. right? Where you can kind of just demystify it and Mm. say, well, somebody else wants to show a concern. Somebody else recognizes Mm. the the disadvantage that you're experiencing. So what's the big deal? Why the aversion? I think it's in the use of the term, if I could place pity on a continuum, you have pity on one side and compassion on the other. So this is just my own reasoning and based on my reading Mm -hmm. of the literature. Mm -hmm. You have pity at one end, which implies that I am superior. Look, I feel a little bit of what you're going through, but I would never want to be you at the moment. You take that one step further, you have sympathy. Sympathy is like, okay, I feel for you. At least I'm taking some kind of an effort to feel for you. But even that, that's not quite so as nice as empathy when you feel with this other person. So if you want to distinguish sympathy and empathy, you get sympathy when you say, I feel for you. That's better, but not quite as good as say empathy. I feel with you Mm -hmm. in this matter. Compassion takes that one step further. I think it's one particular emotion that is often emphasized in both research and also in Buddhist literature is that I acknowledge that you have suffering, but also in addition to that, I want to take that step to help you alleviate that suffering. Right, right. right. Flip that on its and on you know 180 degrees again, and you get pity, right. which is like, okay, you have a problem, you are sad, you are stressed, but you know what? I'm glad you're there, right. and I'm not the one experiencing right, anything right. that you're going through. Right, and that just accentuates the loneliness, right? The initial sense of isolation that led you to feel that disenfranchisement. Mm. And then somebody comes, recognizes the pain, but also reinforcing the gap, right? That's Uh, it. Between, you know, him not seeing but not feeling and then Mm. you just sort of like wallowing in that that position. There is a sense of paradox in the experience of self-pity as well. You want that, but in the same way, we know emotions are contagious. And I think the most depressing or sort of like distressing person that you can be around is the, well, one of them anyway, would be the person who always repeatedly feels sorry mm-hmm. for themselves and they just vent out all their sorrows and all their troubles. Mm-hmm. It can be very draining after a while. Yeah. But there's an interesting move that happens with pity in that it almost precludes, for example, resentment, right? You can't hate mm. and feel sorry for the same thing. Mm. Or can you? Because on one hand, I agree with you that it is, you know, humiliating mm. for the recipient, you know, mm. but I'm trying to wonder as well if a lot of this aversion is, how would you say, largely due to the fact that it's just something that, that we're uncomfortable talking about, you know. Mm. So in that moment when injury is recognized, when a certain dispossession is recognized, or like mm. when you recognize someone else is, you know, not doing well, mm. right? And there is, how would you say, an attempt to identify that, mm. right? Like... What can we do with that moment, right? Is that necessarily bad in itself, you know? Not necessarily. We know, again, based on the limited research that we have, that self-pity is often associated with times of stress and times in which, well, the going gets tough. So in some aspect, I think what you could do to actually help someone who's engaging in self-pity is to first acknowledge that, yes, they're going through a rough patch, they're going through a difficult time, but also then to say that, look, 
you're not just the only one. I, I, I don't mean to say that you just tell this person straight in the face that you, you think you're the only one suffering here right now. I think that's rather <laughs> unempathetic, but I think yeah. getting them to recognize that there is a sense of uh, what Christine Neff calls common humanity, right. that you have challenges, but other people may too have challenges that may not seem all that obvious towards you. Mm-hmm. Uh, another problem with pity is that it often is associated with something called internalizing anger. So a kind of self-anger right. or maybe a kind of suppression of anger as well, which maybe only gets um, released, if you will, when the person experiencing self-pity does not seem to be getting the kind of assistance that they want to. Yeah. Um, I think we need to, I think this is not a satisfying answer, but to consider the situation for what it is, what it is that this person is going through. Maybe this person just needs a little bit more time. But if this person seems to be turning their own negative emotions directly inward towards them, and they're not quite taking that effort or that initiative to say to step out of that glut or that rut, then maybe a slightly more direct and forward approach would be appreciated. Yeah, um, I like that you described it as a turning of the... um the energy inwards, right? Mm. Because that points to something that Nietzsche said about resentment, Mm. right? And how that is essentially breeding a kind of resentment. Self-pity leads to that, right? And for him, it's a paradox in that the self-directed injury Mm -hmm. actually breeds a certain kind of creativity. You wish the world is a different place. Yes. You wish there's a, you know, your sense of morality and righteousness is recognized, right? Correct. So I find that an interesting observation in that Mm this would be the seeds for what we know to be the Christian faith. Mm. You know? I mean, that's his take, mm. right? He's a very, very, he's an atheist and he's very, very no, critical. Of no big friend of Christianity. <laughs> so, mm. so in that sense, I find that curious because it explains why people don't want to leave the state of self-pity. Mm. You know, uh, I've been in that situation where I see this person's been indulging in this, you know, self-indulgent moping, mm. you know, for good reason. Sometimes mm. self-pity is the only recourse you have mm. because nobody else can quite understand how terrible you feel. Okay. So you can only just coddle yourself, mm. right? So I kind of get that. But I also sometimes wonder why is it that they don't want to change mm. or why it's three years into whatever happened mm. and they still repeat that same narrative, right? Mm. And I wonder if there is a sense of control involved in that. You're absolutely right. If we want to link this with what we know so far about self-pity, there's a kind of relationship between self-pity and a kind of external belief control. I like the use of the word control because if we do a study, if we do measure individuals to the extent to which they feel that their situations are under their control, we get one of three. Either internal or it's externally controlled by powerful forces or externally controlled by chance. Mm-hmm. People who engage in self-pity believe that no, it is not within a control. It is controlled by external forces mm. and with powerful others that I have right, no say, no right. influence over. So you're right in a sense that it helps individuals make sense of their situation. Right. It kind of absolves them of that kind of responsibility for taking the actions to get themselves out of that rut. If I find an explanation outside there for why I'm currently in a miserable suffering state, that's going to satisfy me right. a little bit better. Right. Right. So on that note, we could also extend self-pity uh, with its relationship to another emotion, envy, mm-hmm. as well. Other people mm-hmm. seem to have it better, mm-hmm. right? The, I don't know, forces or their luck or their chances seem right. a lot more favorable to be on their side. Why me, poor me? Yeah, yeah. There's a Malay word for this, you know, and and I don't think it maps out directly to the English expression. This is interesting. Let's hear it. <laughs> but the word is marajo. Mirajo. Yeah. A sulk pouting? Maybe? Sulk and pouting. So yeah. all Mirajo would 
presume a certain kind of sulking yeah, or pouting, yeah. but not all pouting is marajo because mm-hmm. you can pout at a bad service at the restaurant. Yeah, right. But marajo <laughs> is specifically a recognition mm-hmm. of a breakdown of a bond. Typically, oh, you're marajo okay. at a person. Okay, you know, and this person has disappointed an expectation or something, yes, and yes. then you're going to kind of withdraw yep. from the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, show that you care less show that you're less invested or may not talk up to that person mm-hmm. at all you know mm-hmm. so just just really to show that you're hurt but not it's a passive aggressive kind it of is. thing <laughs> but you would pout and sulk but fundamentally it signals the recognition that there was dependency in a bond before mm-hmm. and it just didn't quite turn out the way mm. that was idealized or expected mm. therefore i'm going to sulk and pout and withdraw yes. typically into silence or you know a deep abyss somewhere else but the idea here is that my investment in others yes. didn't quite turn out and this is instructive to me to mm. understand what you just described just mm. now right when something out there fails yes something out there disrupted your expectation yep. right therefore you retreat inwards mm. and you then coddle or cradle that injury you try to you try to nurse yourself. it yep. yeah Agreed. I, I think you hit a nail on the head right there when you say that marajo is a, a withdrawal. Um, I think there is an element of self-pity as well that causes people to socially withdraw. They also express some sense that, yes, there's a breakdown of that relationship, perceptions that something was unjustly done towards mm-hmm. them. Maybe the approach that people often take to withdraw is to so to invite this other person to say that, look, I'm not, I'm not happy with the way that this relationship has gone through. I'm not happy with things that have transpired in between us. So I'm going to pull away and see if you come after me. Right, uh, right. Whether, yeah, yeah, basically. That's basically. In, in a so, nutshell. So it's an enticement <laughs> yeah. almost to yes, say that yes. I'm not happy with this relationship. I want to know whether you value it as much as I would. Yes. So I'm going to withdraw and see whether you come after me <laughs> as a result. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we can actually link that to the emotion of jealousy. Right, right. Uh, that is something called strategic displays of jealousy. Mm-hmm. So some playful quips that yeah. some maybe couples out there, you know, listeners might know of. Right, of course. Checking out another person's and, social media and account. It's, and it's interesting that mm. these dynamics play out in the playground when you're five or six and yes. they kind of echo throughout your life. Correct. You know, you kind of turn to those as kind of, like you say, strategies of signaling to, yes. the, to the person. That these you are all relationship management yeah. approaches that very subtle, very nuanced, but they all make use of emotions in the interest of making sure that we maintain the relationships that we want, but also distance ourselves from the ones that we do not want. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Let's take a break right now. We'll come back after these ads. You're listening to Eugene T of Help University at Mama Fat Rahma. And we're discussing self-pity this week on Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Farad Rahmat. Join this week once again, a fellow friend of the show who's been here a lot, but we are talking this week with him about self-pity. He works on psychology and emotions at Help University. And in the first part of the show, we generally define what self-pity is and the, the sort of maneuverings it entails, right? Emotionally positioning yourself towards others, as a way to sort of fulfill the gap or the lack of attention mm-hmm. that the nursing requires, right? So typically self-pity emerges after certain emotional wounds and this is too much to bear alone, but it's also too much to bear with others. So you're kind of <laughs> stuck in this, you know, a tug of war between wanting to dictate the narrative on your own terms or wanting others to affirm you, but, you know, there it is. So... I like it that a lot of these terrible feelings, right? I like it that you've linked self-pity to a lot of other 
emotions that sort of mm. orbit around the, the behavior, right? So mm. jealousy, resentment, right? And let's take a step back to pause and reflect how a lot of these feelings are not isolated from another day. No. They refer to other negative feelings to understand itself, right? Absolutely. Right. So I don't think we experience emotions in isolation. Mm. So if there's a kind of, say, romantic relationship breakdown, for instance, I think usually people report emotions such as anger, maybe specifically resentment as well. And in some research by John Gottman Institute, for instance, that links contempt as one of the four horsemen of a failing relationship. What are the four horsemen again? I think there was stonewalling, contempt, criticism. I think there's one more that always but what's seems... stonewalling? Not wanting to talk, so it's a favorite right, amongst right. men. Okay, interesting. Look, I'm gonna that, just... that should be another episode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're right in saying that a lot of these emotions are not experienced in isolation. Right. And... Each situation has a unique set of circumstances, unique parties, unique actors in it. And so the narrative, if you will, involves a whole range of varied mix of difficult emotions, which makes it very difficult for some individuals to disentangle at times. Right, right. And because sometimes you're jealous at something, mm. but you're resentful at something else. That's right. And somehow that gets mixed up into Correct. some poor person you're channeling it to. That's right. Right. So you can actually displace those emotions as well. And you can feel envious towards a certain individual. You could feel jealous because a relationship that you value is being threatened. I think a lot of people use the terms envy and jealousy interchangeably, but there is a distinct difference between them. Envy is directed towards a quality, a tangible, say, material object or a characteristic that you wish for yourself, but you find it very difficult to attain. Right. Jealousy is when there's a third party involved. So say myself and a friend of mine, if another interloper jumps in the middle, takes my friend away from me, spends a lot more time with that friend, right. then that's actually right. jealousy. Now, you've talked about how how there seems to be very little research on self-pity, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, envy, resentment, you know that there's a wealth of literature out there mm -hmm. and a lot of different feelings, those different feelings. So what do you think explains the relative lack of attention self-pity's gotten? I don't think it's a very well-defined concept. Mm -hmm. Pity would be okay because there is a sense of hierarchical difference in between individuals, the mm -hmm. pity and the pitied. But when we direct these sort of emotions towards ourselves, inward, there seems to be, I don't know, a lesser sort of focus to it. Maybe it's not a very comfortable emotion for mm -hmm. people to deal with. There's a little bit more research on self-anger, for instance, mm -hmm. the anger which you direct towards yourself, a sense of disappointment right. which you Right. Self-flagellation or something like That's that. Right. Self-criticism. Right. Right. I would think self-pity is related a lot to, say, within the broader literature of rumination and mm. other maladaptive emotion regulation approaches. Right, right. So in addition to rethinking and replaying the situation, some part of that also includes a why me, poor me sort of right. narrative. Right. Well, what makes it maladaptive? So you use that word quite a bit. Mm -hmm. What is maladaptive emotions? It's potentially problematic and it could lead to a whole host of psychological, adverse psychological outcomes, mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, being two of the uh, well, most studied outcomes. So these are maladaptive in a sense that, yes, perhaps in the short term, you might have some benefits from anxiety in terms of enhancing your preparedness. But if this is going to creep over into a long-term, say, generalized anxiety disorder, for instance, or depressive episodes, right. then that's really going to impede your well-being. That's also going to impede your daily functioning. Right, right. Well, emotions are interrelational, right? Fundamentally, when, the things that you talk about, envy, jealousy, it is mm -hmm. about not finding a place in relation to connection that you have with someone mm -hmm. else. And that, that hurts, right? And this is a very contentious point, but there is a line of thought out there, maybe among the more sort of liberal inclined uh, liberal-minded people that mm. you're not responsible for how other people feel, right? Because we are all you know, autonomous, we're mm -hmm. individuals with our own 
paths and journeys and mm. our own histories and we don't necessarily need to you know really map how mm. we feel towards how other people feel mm. but i'm increasingly being critical of that mm. it's a very simplified take on how to know Mm. you know like how to value your relationship with others you know mm. how to value how other people value you correct right so what do you make of that like our responsibility to how other people mm. feel like how i know that phrase is very simplified right mm-hmm. but on one hand i like to think that as mature individuals mm-hmm. as adults we are responsible for how we feel yes but the fact that we're social creatures yes. the fact that we're embedded in interpersonal relationships mm. means that at no point are we really not responsible correct. either correct. so how do we negotiate that we are as you said for an interdependent species yeah. uh, and i would share some of your sentiment with you as well i've also caught myself saying a couple of times look i'm really not supposed to be the one fully i think the word that keyword fully responsible for your emotions but at the same time because we are social beings in a collectivist culture i think we need to be a little bit more mindful a little bit more aware about how we're putting ourselves across the things that we say the manner in which we approach and present ourselves to others can rub others in the wrong way you're not going to please everyone with right. your demeanor with your personality with the way in which you speak the way you come across but i think the best that we can do as a sort of middle ground again is to present ourselves in a diplomatic amiable manner so that we lower but we don't eliminate i don't think there's a possibility for us completely eliminating the risk of coming across as being brash or offensive yeah, to other individuals yeah. but the thing is when you say diplomatic and amiable it makes it sound very methodical when human relationships are very mm, messy they are very messy i think you also <laughs> so, need to factor in many different relationships some individuals you can be a little bit more say open right, with high right. degrees of self disclosure others say depending on the context you might want to tone that down a little bit yeah and this is where i feel self pity as you know as abject as it is because i there's a side of me that thinks of it as pathetic you know mm. and i don't encourage it or whatever mm. but it does speak to a very interesting impulse mm-hmm. and that is the fact that we do invest in our attachments and connections with people yes, you know we do. and sometimes we don't necessarily have the emotional vocabulary to describe it mm-hmm. and when there's a breakdown in that mm-hmm. you know we just turn inside because where else are we going to go you That's know right. because so much of our valuation of a connection is mm. is very personal very good you know so sometimes yeah. like when that doesn't work mm. and that person doesn't recognize it yes. you marajo it's just it, the only retreat you have sometimes mm. you know i think it can be very invalidating so mm-hmm. i think one of the keywords i would use is the validation of the self which does not seem to be something that the individual who is engaging in self pity is actually seeking mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the only person who actually understands what i'm going through is me you would mm-hmm. never understand mm-hmm. so i think that speaks to a lot of cases where individuals turn insight towards them mm-hmm. they have that added benefit of showing other people that look i'm isolated i'm lonely in a way indirectly calling for attention indirectly calling for support as well but again because it is a paradoxical emotion it's balanced with a sense that okay only i understand myself right. right and so i'm going to keep to that if anyone comes over i can sort of filter through who really understands me then maybe i'll open up a little bit more right right and this ties into a lot of how you know pain and injury are communicated in the day of social media mm. right in in a sense where people get confessional on social media yes, people do. talk about their misgivings mm. or just their utter you know sadness sometimes mm. online and this is in a way on one hand a safe space yes because they would not do that same public suddenly mm. standing out in the middle of the office That's yelling right. it to people but they do have it on facebook <laughs> yeah but on the other hand the fact that they can only show that side of them mm. online also points to 
the reason why it has to happen to begin with, there's a sense of isolation that pervades, yes, right? Yes. So the paradox is in the feeling, but it's the paradox also in the platform. Yes. Right? Or in these avenues where those feelings can be channeled. That's right. So yeah. on social media, I might have come across a few statements that when people engage in these kinds of self-disclosure, they are doing so behind relative anonymity. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to disclose every single aspect of that situation, leading some commentators to say that these are posts make Facebook sound like vague book. So mm-hmm. it's very vague and it's very ill-defined kinds of statements and you would see that in sometimes I, I'm not sure whether this is an authentic post but people who are friends with this individual who made the original post would go and say hey you know what that sounds a little bit rough you want to tell me what's wrong and the mm-hmm. response from the original post is that nah it's not something you would understand it's not right. something that you would, right, they would right. yeah so maybe a call for attention but I think Maybe for some of these individuals, it's enough to know that at least someone saw that post right, right. and maybe reacted or responded to it. Yeah. And in a way, sometimes depression plays, well, not sometimes, well, most of the time, depression plays tricks on you in that it's not attention that you seek, but mm. the right dosage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not care that you want, but just the right amount that you feel cared for, but you still can keep yourself in your cocoon, right? Yes, It's very right. self-destructive and sometimes it, mm. it's a way, it's, it's delusional, right? but it's a way of you coping, mm. you know? But like you said, the coping makes things worse in mm. the long run, you know? And sometimes, unfortunately, people not necess- don't necessarily have the amount of self-reflection to know when they're doing that. Yes. You know, I think that's the danger, you yes. know? Uh, and self-pity is one of those things where there's a lot of, I think, authentic hurt, authentic yes. indignation, mm. but because it's so isolated and so hard to talk about, mm-hmm it clouds all the potential remedies that might be there. That's you know? right. Yeah, That's right. So a lot of the, say, the responsibility or maybe the onus of actually getting out of the cocoon, if I could use yeah, the yeah. term that you use, rests within that individual. So as friends, close friends, I think you can take that step towards approaching this individual, but giving a little bit of space as well. So it's almost in a sense that if you're approaching someone with self-pity, you too have to straddle in between right. how close and how how much you want to approach, how closely you want to approach this individual, how much space yeah. you want to give them for them to also process their own emotions. Yeah. So how does one traverse this? You know, mm-hmm. because unlike a lot of other emotions, let's say jealousy, right? Mm. It's, it's much harder to hide, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, envy is harder to hide. Resentment is harder to hide. Mm. But self-pity is because it's shaped like a cocoon, mm. right? There's a sense of, uh, you know, stealth to it, right? And that <laughs> it's hard to be comfortable with that too, yes. right? Because so as we talked about is this paradox where you've really built your own universe of wallowing. Mm. And the reason why it's valuable is because no one else can really access it. Yes. You know? You feel um, safe. You feel safe in that. But at the same time, it's unsustainable. So how does one slowly peel the layers Mm. of the cocoons gradually? Yeah, there's some approaches, and one of them which I can introduce, the only other time in which self-pity was mentioned was in an article on self-compassion. So self-compassion is, it consists of something called common humanity, mindfulness, and self-kindness. So the work has been pioneered by one Kristen Neff, who suggests that firstly, because you're, it's so, you, you're stuck in that cocoon, you ruminate, you're trapped almost. The webs of that cocoon have actually spun right around you. Taking that first step back and recognizing that other people have their own cocoons as well, their own challenges and difficulties is important. Recognizing mm. that other people have miseries and difficulties that they don't necessarily project and show to you 
they have their own struggles as well. That's one important first step. Right. To be mindful, um, I think as we've discussed just very briefly, is the sense that you take that step back and you objectively assess yourself, your emotions, your experiences as you would an impartial, dispassionate, independent observer. Right. Not an easy thing to do because if you to take a step back and say, what does that self-pity looked like. I think right. we have come up with this really lovely visualization of it being a cocoon, mm -hmm. a safe sort of like chrysalis or a right. kind of universe in which you've built walls around. You are there, you are safe, but you're not going to move anywhere mm -hmm. unless you take yourself out of it. Being mindful of this and taking that step back, recognizing that a cocoon is ensnaring you, suffocating you, recognizing that it is maladaptive yeah. is also an important step. Yeah. And once you do so, I think then self-kindness comes into, yeah. you're not giving yourself excuses. And I think the one thing that you don't want to do is to be stuck in a rut where you think that poor me, yeah. look, I'm just gonna wait for someone to come and rescue me. I think you have, and you right. can be empowered to do that for yourself. Yeah. It's so seductive though, that mm. poor me narrative, right? It and is. I know people who are stuck in it for decades too, mm. you know? something that was lost, something that really altered their, or, or this is the narrative goes anywhere, it changed their life forever and mm. you, can, you can never have it back, that mm. kind of thing. And you're left wanting for a long time. But now yeah. what happens to the brain in that process? Like which part of the brain is firing? Because I'm trying to recognize too that there's a certain twisted pleasure in that. Mm. And on one hand, you're right, it's debilitating. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you also know that there's a kind of indulgence in that. Mm. Yeah. So how do you explain the indulgence element? I think it's a sense of safety again, that psychological right, right. safety. I probably wouldn't pinpoint or at this stage can't pinpoint any part of the sure, brain sure. that's associated with self-pity. Well, that's research so waiting to be That's to research happen, waiting actually. to be done. So any <laughs> listeners out there who are neuroscientists who are keen to work on this, that's an avenue for research. Yeah, yeah. But even before that, I think the kind of safety, familiarity would be good, would be a good term as well. So I would make a very general and very uh, rough prediction. There is some part of the brain that's related to safety, comfort, familiarity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that gets triggered, which seems assuring a sort of solve, if you will, yeah. S-A-L-V-E, to the threat, to the sense of inferiority, to the right. stress that an individual goes through after experiencing stress. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the, the more ominous part of self-pity is that it's a domain where the self is more split than it already normally is, mm, you know, because is. you need the active persecutor. Correct. And you need the active victim. Mm -hmm. you know? And I don't know many other feelings where those two standpoints are that amplified. Yes, you know? it is. It's a very scary place to be in. It is, it is. Yeah. Using the victim and the executioner, you are the pitier and the pity, yeah. right? Is it, it fractures the self. So yeah. it's a tension in between who you see in mm. yourself and as both the victim and the critic right, uh, right. of your own circumstances. All right, uh, Eugene, we have to wrap up soon. Do you have any uh, reading suggestions or websites or videos, anything that you feel that our listeners can look into further? Well, there are a lot of resources, just general articles on self-pity that you can do a search of. I think a couple on psychology today as well. I think with this, we might also come up with an article, maybe start a program of research. You can check us out. <laughs> All the work that we're doing on emotivity. Well, let us know. I mean, maybe you can have you again, you know, to Absolutely. talk about it's the been a research pleasure. once it's done. So, uh, or you can email the show for questions or comments, bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook. 
Download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks again, Eugene. It's always a pleasure, and we hope to have you over again. You're working on a book now, a couple of books, right? For yes, I get yes. You want to uh, plug it? Sure. Any, any, anything coming out soon? Yes, um, there will be a book coming out in bookstores. Well, obviously in bookstores. In and around, say, a couple of weeks' time. It's oh, wow. um, out for print right now. It's called Off Bromances and Biting Cute Babies. I think you have been right. <laughs> introduced to that book. Questions about emotions you probably never thought about asking. So we ask questions such as, why do I feel like biting a cute baby? Do bromances really exist? Why right. are some people thrilled by haunted houses and roller coasters? Who's and thinking rides? about biting cute babies again? Well, well it's, it's interesting. Just, yes. What's your market research before uh, writing this? We, curious we surveyed people <laughs> and we got them and said, hey, you have any questions about emotions? You ever wondered about why? Right, so right. we asked questions. Oh, you should, have, you should have asked me, man. I had a bunch of questions. Awesome. And the other book would be a book on mindfulness with Mr. Sandy Clark. Right, uh, that right. is not yet titled but that should be out sometime in the middle of Great. but l- let's let's talk about having you over again once the book is out sure you know? absolutely that maybe not be immediately but you know once you have some feedback from it and like, once it's out in the market we can talk about it more right. so thanks a lot Eugene thank you so much uh, for it I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9 The Business Station Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.